You're listening to Real Talk for Real Men, episode number 12. Welcome to the Real Talk for Real Men podcast. Lifestyle advice for men so powerful, you'll want to run your life on it. And now your hosts, Guy Mullen and Chris Field. Well, hello, everybody. This is Guy Mullen. Welcome back to Real Talk for Real Men. And it's good to be back again with my friend and co-host, Chris Field. Hi, everybody. Great to be back with you. So a little while ago, we did an interview with Chris and me, where no, Chris no, no, no. interviewed I, me. I interviewed you. Where Chris interviewed me. <laughs> so now we thought we'd turn the tables around today. And I'm going to ask Chris a few questions about his long history, okay. his long past. Now don't say long like that. You make me sound like an old fellow. Actually, Guy, there is something I want to talk about mm. um, out of my, my history. And I think a lot of guys might resonate with this. But one of the things that... Um, I really struggled with when I was young was a, a really deep inferiority complex, I suppose you'd call it. I don't think I was aware of it as such at the time. I just lived my life with this incredible feeling that I was um, being noticed all the time in a way that embarrassed me. So for instance, when I was in about grade three or grade four at school, I remember sitting on, in my desk at school in a classroom full of about 30 kids. The teacher would write something on the board. Uh, mm-hmm. And she'd say to everybody, or he would say to everybody, copy down it on, on your piece of paper, on your book. So I would, I would do what I was told. I was obedient, d- dutiful little kid. I did what I was told. Then I'd get to the end and, and, and I'd put my pen down, click, and someone would turn around. And they'd have that feeling like, uh-oh, um, they're probably going to think about um, he's too smart or he's too quick or who does he think he is? And just a really heightened self-consciousness. I shouldn't have had a self-consciousness. I should have just been at ease with myself. Mm. But this inferiority thing somehow was manifesting in this kind of hyper-self-consciousness thing. Mm -hmm. And so it got that way that I would sit in the classroom if we had to copy something down. I would copy it down, usually faster than most other people and usually fairly neatly because I was just that kind of kid. I just did what I was told, right? And when I'd finished... Instead of dropping my pen where it might, might make a noise, and I, I would sit there and trace back over what I'd already written until I could hear three or four other kids shuffling because they'd clearly finished. Then I would sit back in my chair. Because if I sat back early than that, I felt like that would be um, too obvious. People wouldn't notice it. Uh, and now, it might sound like much, but that's just one of those indicators that I was actually strung up on the inside. There was something wrong in my self-awareness. If you, if you were so uh, self-conscious with a small issue like that, then there must have been much bigger. Probably. Much, the, much bigger instances where you were well, paralyzed with. Yeah. I, I found that if I was in a room, uh, if I walked into a room, this is as a kid and then into my teenage years, if I walked into a room, I assumed that people were aware of me and they were looking at me, possibly a little bit like, what's he doing here? Who is he? Mm. Just they were looking at me. Mm-hmm. And so if I walked into a room and uh, I was looking at the floor, I couldn't lift my eyes up to the eye level of everybody else because it's really embarrassing to look up and see someone sit watching you and eyeball them. That would just, that, I would just get really embarrassed by that moment. Mm-hmm. So if I walked into a room, I would actually walk with my head down and leave my head down all the time until maybe someone said hello to me and I would look up and, and look at them. Uh, I guess that's pretty typical shy behavior, people looking down. But it's an elevated shyness. It's a, it's a much bigger shyness than what you typically would... Probably. Yeah. For me, yeah, I'd say I was screwed up. I'm just, I'm just trying to give you a picture of what it was like in practice. Mm. Uh, so what I had to do, I realised that 
that was really awkward and it was really horrible because maybe maybe at some point nobody was looking at me, but I never got to find out because I was looking down. And so I, I had to come up with strategies about how to cope with this uh, internal issue. And what I found was if I walked uh, over toward a wall and had my back toward the wall and just and then just slowly lifted my eyes up, I could scan the room and quickly realize nobody was looking at me. And as long as I kept my eyes up at everyone else's eye level, because people would turn around, they'd look at you, you know, momentarily. Um, but if I, if I met them like that, eyeball to eyeball, I was okay. But if I looked down to a tray to pick up a biscuit because there was a bit of food, once my head was down and I was off the eye level, I could not lift my eyes back up again, just in case I eyeballed someone that was looking at me. It was just, just weird. That's just, that's just what I'd live with. I just thought that was maybe normal. Uh, so I struggled with this this uh, uh, inferiority, hyper self-consciousness thing. And the real breakthrough came when I was leaving primary school into high school. I figured that in our high school, which drew from about six different primary schools, only one-sixth of the kids would know me. And, and, and they would know me that I was this kind of nerdy, uh, inferior, insecure kind of person. But the others didn't. And if I could go in and sell myself, if I could go in and make a big impression, make a big splash, because actually I, I wanted to be up front. I, I really liked the idea of, 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 of being, I liked the spotlight. Mm-hmm. But then I had this competitive or, or disabling uh, mm-hmm. opposite reaction. In fact, in my last year at primary school, uh, the school assembly would get everyone to line up and then someone would go, up, a boy and a girl would walk up onto the platform in front of the kids, was it once a week or a couple of times a week? And we had the thing where we would make a school pledge and we would have uh, salute the flag and there was this little saying that we had to have that, you know, I, I salute the flag and honour the queen or whatever it was, a sort of a little poem. And I really wanted the job of being up there on the platform because, like, that was the spotlight place for a kid in primary school. So I got my chance and uh, I stood uh, out of the way until the principal called us up and this girl and I, we walked up and we had to be in uniform and look really neat, stood in front of all the kids and as soon as I looked out at all the kids, I, I just had this shock experience. My face just began to glow red like a, like a tomato mm. and, and it burnt and my eyes stung and, and I was blinking at 90 miles per hour. Tears were streaming down my face. It was like this real inferiority shock moment that I had. And thankfully, I was one of those kids that sort of paid attention to what I was doing. I'd memorized the pledge. So I, I was able to, with a loud voice, lead everybody in the school pledge. But standing there blinking at 90 miles per hour with my face red like a beetroot. And we wheeled around and we walked off. And I thought, what in the world was that? But I had to do it, you know, for, for quite a period of time. And every time I got up in front of the kids, I had exactly the same experience. And that was linked to this idea of, of being very self-conscious in a room or, or with other people. On that transition from primary school to high school, I made up my mind that I was going to just overcome my problem. I mm. was going to just be Guy Smiley. I was going to be the hero. I was going to be out there, use my big voice and my, my commanding sense of presence and trample under my feet this whatever this problem was. Mm. The difficulty was that walking to my high school, I had to walk uh, for about 50 feet or so uh, beside the main highway. I'd walked up to the highway, get across the highway, and walk along before I ducked into the churchyard that would lead me across as a shortcut to where I had to keep walking, about a mile and a half, two miles to get to school. And as soon as I got up near the, the highway, I had this horrible feeling that every car driving past, the driver and the passengers were staring at me. And, and of course they weren't. 
but I felt they were. I was sure they were. And it burnt me up that, that, that I was, and, and I would have my head down and I'd walk with my shoulders hunched as quick as I possibly could to cut into the churchyard. And as soon as I was out of sight, oh, wonderful feeling of relief that I was no longer being, being stared at by everybody. Now, of course, they weren't even looking at me. But this was my internal world, and so I had to just deal with that. And now, I'm talking now about being 12, 13 years old. You know, I'm not a, not a baby anymore. I'm, I'm a, but, and you would have thought I shouldn't have this sort of experience. I just discovered a strategy. I figured to myself that if sometimes when you look at someone eyeball to eyeball, they'll look away. And so I decided that mm. that was the way to get the upper hand. Instead of me being shy of looking at them, I would look at them. Until they looked away. And, and then I was on top. I would, oh, I would, you know, I was going to just turn the whole thing over. So here I am walking along beside the highway, and every car that came past, I would eyeball the driver. <laughs> Next car, I bit dangerous the nowadays. Next, eyeball the driver. Yeah, you'd get these weird looks, and people think, what's wrong with that kid? You know, as they drove past, they go, what, what's wrong with that kid? He's staring me down. But th- that was my way of, of, of coping. And so when I, my, through my high school years, uh, I, I just made that my game. I was walking in a room and I was, I was in everyone else's face. My, I was eyeballing them. I was playing the game of being the, 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 the key player. And look, I loved being in the spotlight. I, I, I got um, the, into the debating team. We were, I was the champion of the debating team in my later years at high school. I performed lead roles in the school musicals and stuff like that. Loved the stage, loved being up front. And I, I felt like I'd overcome this insecurity thing. Hmm. In the process, however, I'd actually developed the habit of living a lie. Because even that sense of self-confidence was a lie. And I just hmm. built lie upon lie upon lie. Now, I was a Christian. I, I took my Bible to church. And I was the one kid that would turn up at, at, at the youth meeting, if, even if no one else was there. I was determined to make sure that God noticed me. And that he, he kept my name on the list of people that were going to get to heaven. I tried my very hardest to, to be a good little Christian boy in everything that I did. But despite all of that, I found that for me to cope, I would actually live a lie. And I can't remember all the different examples now. I'm an old man, thinking back a lot of years. But all sorts of different ways that I always tried to give the impression that I was smarter than I was, that I was older than I was, that I was more talented than I was. Uh, because I needed to score points. I, I needed to make up for some kind of feeling of, of deficiency deep on the inside. Yeah. And the way I did that was bluff. And the way I did it was... And one silly example, uh, late into my teenage years, before I was old enough to have a driver's license and own my own car, my dad had to go down to the, a car yard where they were changing tyres. He had to get new tyres put on his work vehicle. And I just went down with him and I was standing in the crowd just watching while they processed different vehicles. And a guy came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, mate, is that car over there yours? Well, the, the truthful answer was, no, sorry, I haven't, I'm not even old enough to drive, right? But I turned around and gave it a good look. I said, oh, no, that's not mine. And that was the part of the game I always played. Always look like um, you are as old, uh, older than you are, as old as people might think you are. Mm. Um, I, I tried to use, if I, if I heard a really good word, a big word somewhere, I tried to put it, put it in a new sentence so, so that I'd go somewhere and drop uh, big words in a sentence on people I'd never met before to, sh- to give the impression that I was smarter than I was. And my whole life had actually become this kind of game. It was actually really fake. Um, I lived it, and, and that was how I, I spent my high school years, you know. So it's, it's, 
you know, it's, it's something that's in a way we're taught uh, through, I don't know whether any of you have experienced it, but with some of the, you know, maybe the, the self-help stuff that, that we see nowadays, it's you believe, yeah. believe what you are, yeah. believe, believe what you want to become before you are. And, you know, and I, Muhammad Ali had a quote, something like that. I can't remember it word for word, but it was something like that. He believed he was the greatest, I'm the greatest before I, before I was mm-hmm. type of thing. Uh, and, um, you know, we have this idea that if we, if we tell ourselves or convince ourselves of something enough, then we'll start to believe it. Is that what you were trying to do? Yes, and I think that I, I'd lost sight of reality. My, my world had just become plastic and I knew no other world. I couldn't have gone anywhere else if I tried. Uh, this was the only world I knew. Um, my world was to try and find personal satisfaction out of seeming important, out of getting... And I realise now as I look back that we are all love receptors. Like a radio station picks up radio signals and a television set picks up TV signals and a mobile phone picks up mobile phone signals. We, as people made in the image of God, pick up love. That's the signal that we're meant to tune into. And when we feel that we're not getting it or we feel that we want more of it, if we can't find that source of love, well, we go to the substitutes uh, to be Mm. infamous or to be famous, Mm. to be acknowledged, to be known, to be thought, to be smart, to, to have someone say, oh, you're clever, anything like that which is a substitute for love, mm. was something we go seeking. And I was seeking it a big time. Now, I can't say that my parents were unloving people. My parents, uh, their marriage survived, you know, and, and I had four brothers that lived and we were getting on with life. Um, you know, we, we were just pretty average. I don't think uh, we were living in a super dysfunctional home or my father wasn't a drunkard. We weren't getting beaten up or anything really serious. But I still lived with this really real feeling that the only love I was going to get was by impressing people and having them say, oh, Chris, you're smart. Oh, Chris, you're talented. Oh, Chris, you're clever. Um, that was my substitute for, for, for what my heart was crying out for, to just be loved the way I was. And that brings me to, to where the remedy began to come in my life. Because can, I, can I just ask before you get on to that? Yeah. Is, is, that a, is that a fault of religion sometimes? Um, well, look, it could well be. Um, what what do you say well, in that question? I was I was watching something from uh, Beer Grills the other day. My yeah. my one of my sons loves loves Beer Grills and all the you know sleeping in the camel carcasses and so drinking his own urine. No, he's a British adventurer. Yeah, he used to be. He was special forces for the for the British Army. He was the youngest Brit to climb Mount Everest at the age twenty three. About eighteen months after he broke his back in a parachuting accident when his parachute didn't open. A real d- danger. And man. yeah, now he's a t- he's had a TV show for a long time, Man vs Wild, plus a few other ones. But um, anyway, one of these guys. He's a real adventurer, and uh, and anyway, he he was being interviewed, and um, he was asked about his beliefs in Christianity, and he said, well, when he when he was young, he always believed that 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 God was a loving God and that cared for him, and you know, and was personal in nature, and then he was involved with the church. I can't remember what branch it was, whether it was the Anglicans or the Catholics or or, or another one, but. That all got smashed out of him, in his words, and kind of thing. That it was all about rituals and um, and sacraments and and performance, and, and all this sort of stuff. And it completely 
mm-hmm. completely removed his idea of his, his idea that he had in his younger life about who God was, and it caused him to go away from God until until later. Okay. And so you know, and so I guess I'm just wondering whether you know whether the church, to some degree, has a role to play in uh, in a sense there of removing some of the the sense of being loved that we should be experiencing because God is love and we should be experiencing his love is. I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to, t- you, you, I'm going to throw it's something. It's not so in. much more so in the church today. The church today is very different and perhaps has gone too much the other way and says yeah. that God is love and, and there's, and you experience God's love and there's, there's, there's not enough of the holiness, but back in your day, it wasn't that hey, long, which hey. wasn't that long ago. <laughs> You're determined to make me sound like a fossil and all of our listeners. I'm just, well, I'm just, I'm just speculating, just asking the question. No, I'll give you an answer that, that an older pastor made this comment to me. He said that, and I was going to evangelical churches where you would go to a worship service in the morning and at night you'd go back again for what they called the evangelistic service. Right. There were only ever church members that turned up for either. But every Sunday night they would preach the gospel as if you were a sinner and the way the preacher could find out he'd done well was he got somebody to respond. So if there wasn't anyone that could, as a sinner, become a Christian, then the question was, how many of you feel like you might have backslidden this last week or you might not be in touch with God anymore and you want to refresh your faith? And what we would call a rededication, Hmm. it wasn't exactly the same as a scalp of a sinner getting saved, but it was the next best thing. And so week after week, we were subjected to being asked to... um, reinvestigate our lives and to doubt and question whether we were really right with God. Whether you're really safe, questioning yeah. that constantly. And, and, and that was just only because the church formula was the morning is for worship and the evening is for evangelism. And so this pattern prevailed even though there were no people to preach the gospel to evangelistically. Mm. It was just the formula. Mm. And an older pastor said to me when I was in my early 20s who he was reviewing this situation and he said, you know, that brings about what he called a spirit of condemnation. If someone keeps challenging you, do you really believe it? Do you still really believe it? Do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? Are you sure you're right? Are you sure you're right? That only causes you to actually lose confidence. It causes you to become susceptible to a feeling of condemnation. Mm. And I thought, well, I hadn't reflected on that particularly, but I think that was all part of the process. You say the church failed. Yeah, I think think that... Um, mechanical uh, structure of the way the church decided to formula formularize its evangelical worship program uh, did have that fruit in my life and so I always found myself feeling like I was a pretty lousy Christian because I knew there were things in my life that were out of order and one day we'll talk about my involvement in masturbation and other stuff that that I got myself addicted to and so I wanted to be a Christian and get to heaven but I had things in my life that I knew weren't pleasing to God and the big fear was that he'd be loading people onto the bus and he'd say to me, sorry, you step off and make room for them because they're better than you are, you know. Mm. And so there was this terrible sense of insecurity about my faith as well that was happening in the background. And to the point that when it came at, at one Sunday morning at church, um, we, the girls who came to our um, afternoon uh, youth program said that uh, Elvis's movie Blue Hawaii or whatever was going to be shown on television in Australia for the very first time and they were all staying home to watch it. They weren't going to come to youth group. Um, I said to my dad, drive me down to the church. And we sat in the car park in the church for the whole hour that the youth program was on. 
because I wanted the angels to make sure they saw that I was there and, I, and Elvis wasn't more important to me than Jesus. Now, that's crazy as a person in their mid-teens, right? But that just shows that sense of fear, insecurity, screwed up on the inside, where I couldn't just trust God's love. I couldn't just stay saying that they're not going to be there. I don't need to go. There was this heightened sense of need to be seen, need to be doing the right thing, need to tick the boxes. Performance. Performance, yeah. Now, in an evangelical church, you wouldn't have thought that would have been the case, mm. but, but, it, but it was. And so it was interesting because that led me up to um, my late teenage years. And uh, there was a bit of a stirring, a moving of God happening around my mum and dad's lives. And uh, God began to kind of turn up in interesting ways and challenge my dad about whether God could heal today. And, and my mum needed some help and she got prayer and things began to happen in her life that were positive. And we began to meet with other people who seemed to have a freshness in their faith as we did that I began to get a, a disturbance internally which was the sense that God was tapping me on the shoulder and saying Chris I want to deal with you Chris I want to talk to you Chris I want to start working in your life and my immediate reaction was to be scared witless at the thought that God wanted to because I knew that I was a bit of a mess but I'd pulled myself together, like like I, I had my act together now. You know, I was a champion debater. I, I could perform on stage. Mm. I, I could do the stuff, you know. Mm. This package, I, I, I'd worked it all out. And if God began to start pulling at it, you know, it might fall apart. You know, mm. I just really didn't want God messing with my life. Mm. But this persistent thought began to start coming to me. Chris, that you're a phony. Chris, you're a fake. Chris... I've got to do business in your life. You've got to start admitting that you've got a need. And I can remember having mental conversations with God when I would feel God, and I don't want to say I feel God, this just a thought or impression would come to me. God was sort of, to my mind, God was saying to me, Chris, um, you've got inferiority issues I want to deal with. And I can remember in my head arguing back to God saying, no, I haven't. Look at the way I perform. Look at what I can do. There was a sense that I was defending my position. Yes, I had those problems in primary school, but when I got to high school, I've, I've, I've tra- championed them. I've, I've trampled these Well, you're a champion debater. You just, I was you debating just, with God. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but maybe that's what was going on. And I was really struggling. Now, that process went on uh, for ages, and I'm talking about maybe a, a couple of years, this, this process. I was opening myself to God really enjoyed the idea that people around me were having something fresh in their faith. I enjoyed things I was learning. But this was turf that I didn't want God to touch. This, every time I got onto that subject, I kind of felt myself pushing God away. And one Sunday, a little tiny church outreach that was being run by this uh, pastor that was visiting, he asked me if, if I would get up and sing, lead some songs. And I knew all the songs. They were just uh, the choruses and songs that were sung in the, in the day. Uh, and uh, I had a list of them, and I got up and began to lead the songs. And, of course, I was, I was up front. That was pretty good. I liked that idea, you know, and I thought I could sing pretty well, and I was going to do a good job. Uh, we got to the very last song, and it was one of those kind of have your own way, Lord, or something a bit more prayerful. Mm. And some of the people actually closed their eyes while they were singing, and, and it was that was a, a, the perfect opportunity for God to do what he did. Suddenly, I had a panic attack. Suddenly... My face went red like a beetroot. My eyes began to burn and I blinked at 90 miles per hour and tears streamed down my face exactly like in primary school. And as quick as the song finished, before it even finished, I walked off the platform and sat in the front row and I thought to myself, God, I've got a problem. 
I've got, I've got a really serious problem. And I felt like God was saying, it took a long time for me to get you to admit it. So I felt I'd conquered all of that. I felt I'd, but all I'd really done was trampled it down, hmm. put a straight jacket on it, nailed it down, locked it down so it couldn't be emerge in my life and destabilize me. And God had to kind of pull the, the nails out and let that horrible feeling of, of, of terrible uh, self-consciousness and shame come leaping out at me for me to be able to say to God, okay, what do we do? So, so the step from you was to finally say, okay, God, you can... Well, one of the things that I do, I, I have a, a process called the Steps to Release, which I use when I'm counseling and mm. people use it around the world. The, 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 step, the very first step that I like to work on is you've got to admit you've got a need. Mm. And I think the reason I do that is because for me, it took me so long mm. to make that admission. I fought God for so long. I did not want to admit that my life on the inside was still screwed up. I wanted my ins- I wanted to, to maintain this fantastic image and I wanted it to be true. And of course it wasn't. And so I was lying to myself. I, I just wouldn't let God get in there. I, I just did everything I possibly could to make sure I could protect this fragile me that was underneath that big facade. And a lot of things happened after that and we don't have time to go through all of them. Maybe some other time we can have a chat about that. But there was another real clincher moment that came a little bit later. Uh, God began to work in my life and things began to get sorted out. But I was still harboring a lot of my fakeness. I let God get in, but I was a lot of fakeness about who I was. And a strange moment came when I felt that God was uh, challenging me. And he said, if, if I could put it in a conversation, this is how it seemed to be. It was only in my head, but this is how it seemed to be. God was saying to me, Chris, you're a phony. And, and, and I was resisting it, saying, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. And then this th- word from God that seemed to be in my thought in my head, Chris, I can only deal with real people. And as long as you pretend to be somebody else, I can't deal with you. But if you'll be honest and you'll strip away all the plastic facade, the, the, the smiling hero, the super confident, super smart, and nothing's a problem, I can, do, I can handle it person. If you strip all that away and admit that you're fearful, you're insecure, you're weak, you're unreliable, you've got all these other problems, if you'll just be real with me... I will take the real you and I'll heal you and I'll nourish you and I'll strengthen you and I'll build you until the real you is magnificently better than your fake you could ever be and it will be solid. It'll be the real thing. It'll be the real deal. Mm. Or you can keep your plastic facade and you'll still be as miserable and screwed up on the inside as you are right now for the rest of your life Mm. and it'll be a waste of your life. You know, that's the deal. Are you in? And, oh, <laughs> I really wanted to be in that deal, but I really didn't want to be in that deal. It was just this real struggle internally, you know, to actually have to be to be honest with people, to, to, to strip away years, a decade of, 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 of falsehood, to, to strip all that away and admit I, I'm not what I am. So what I'm does not. that look like to strip that away? What does that look like? It, it meant I had to actually not be opportunistic and seize the moment and try and, and give an impression, try not, not to be fake at all. Uh, funnily enough, <laughs> you'd think this was a movie script, but after this process had happened, uh, I had gone to work as a 
radio announcer on a, on a radio station uh, out of my town area, and I was I, I'd gone to over a Christmas break before I went to uni between high school and uni. I, I'd gone, and God was working me over, and um, I'd come to this sense that God really wanted me to be real, to be, just be myself. Well, of course. When you've got a voice and you can be on the radio and you can be a DJ, you know, that all sounds really impressive. And that was pretty good stuff to kind of impress everybody. But he was God saying, don't play that card. Don't go there. And the truth is that in order for me to get the job in that particular radio station, they they only wanted a female copywriter, not a radio announcer. And so to hire me, I had to take the job of the female copywriter and sit in the, in the area where people wrote up and typed up the announcements that the announcers read on air as a copywriter. And then while I was there, they'd give me the opportunity to go on air, which they did, and I ended up running my own shifts. But um, my actual job was female copywriter. Female meaning I had to accept the female salary, which was lower than the male salary. Right? It was I actually was employed. Not that wasn't the word on the on the, the paper, but I was replacing a female copywriter, a salary and everything else, just to get my foot in out of the radio station. But there was a Christian outreach that that Christmas, and I got involved in that. There was a sweet young girl there called Sue that I took a real liking to, and really wanted to to impress her, and I did my best to make sure she noticed me and. I was a radio announcer. That made me somebody important for in, in that kind of world. And uh, we went on our very first date, uh, went out for, a, for an outing. And um, the, then the next morning, I uh, drove it to a church service, which wasn't a church I normally went to. It was an Anglican cathedral. I drove it to the place. As we pulled up in the car park, um, Susan turned to me and she said, Chris, how old are you? Now, I knew that she was about 10 months older than me because I did my homework, you know. And I knew that girls didn't really want to have a, a, a husband or a boyfriend that was younger than them. And I really didn't want to have to tell her. I would have loved to have said to her, how old do you think I am? That was my standard line before. Hmm. And when they would put me two or three years older than I was, I'd say, yeah, pretty close. And I would never tell them. I, I played on other people's guess as my, and it was just part of the game. Hmm. And here, I just knew I couldn't do that. I had to be honest, I had to be real. And I told Susan how old I was. And it was younger than she thought. And she stepped out of the car door without saying a word, and she closed the door behind her. To me, she closed the door in such a way as to bend the chassis. She slammed that door pretty hard. And she walked toward the church service at, at breakneck speed so fast was she getting out of there that by the time I got out and locked the door, we had to use a key back in those days, um, she was almost in the church building and her footsteps crunch, 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 crunch on the gravel. We were running a bit late anyway and we were the only ones in the car park. I ran after her and she was already seated by the time I got in the building. And she was seated in a row that was so crowded there was not room for me to sit beside her. And to me that was the end of my world. This girl was sweet, I liked her. And I almost felt like saying to God, God, why couldn't I lie to her? Why couldn't I? Why did I have to tell her how old I was, that I was younger than her now, when, when our, our relationship is so fledgling? you know. Mm. And that was sort of part of that process. You say, how did it work out in practice? It was this sense I just had to be honest. I just had to be real instead of playing the silly games that were just automatic for me to play with everybody all the time. 
I, I went and forced, my, forced myself in beside Susan uh, in the seat. People made enough room. We all squeezed in and I sat beside her. And in time I married her and we've had seven kids and praise God it was, it was worth the journey. <laughs> but um, that was just that uh, outworking of God saying to me, Chris, I, I can use you. I can make you real. I can heal you. I can restore you. But only when you admit you really got the need and you let me mess with you. You let me start stripping away all the fakery that's a part of who and what you are. Mm. So that's the journey that um, we've uh, been on in terms of this whole process. And and uh, so I could say a whole lot more about it, but that's probably a reasonably good summary of, of where I first became aware of the problem and, and how it worked through. Um, there's a whole lot I could say about how that I heard a whole lot of preachers back in those days talk about the Father heart of God and how that God loved us unconditionally. And it was that discovery that God loved me just the way I was that was so important for me. Mm. And the phrase I developed was, God loves me just the way I am and he loves me so much I can't even fail my way out of his love. And that mm. just that's my, my, my real security is not in me. I'm a, I'm a jerk. I'm a clown. I can make a mess in no time, right? Um, my confidence and my security is in God and in his ability to care about me, his desire to love me. And you, know, you go back to a whole bunch of scriptures. You know, you go back to Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's a love that doesn't, it's not conditional. It's mm. not temporary. It's mm. not, oh, well, this is love week and next week it'll be something else. It's, an ever, it's a love that is enduring. And that, oh, I have so needed that, so relied upon that in, in, in the, the journey of the decades since then. I just have to thank God for capturing me. I have to thank him for persisting with me when I was pushing him off at every possible turn. Mm. And I have to thank him for being really tough with me and not letting me live my plastic life because it was pretty useless. It was pretty fake. It really was. And it was very unsatisfying. And now to be able to be who I am, to enjoy being who I am, to help other people, to, to ah, all of the stuff that I enjoy now, so many times in a week, not every day probably, but close to it, I just say to God, God, I just so enjoy being alive. I just so enjoy being who you've made me to be. I, I'm stoked. Life is really something that's tremendously satisfying. I go back to those early years in my teenage years, I, even when I had had all the accolades of, of having outperformed everybody else in the, the debating competition or having um, done the stunning performance in the school musical. It just was like water off a duck's back. It, it, no matter how much of it I drank, it never satisfied me. And now to just enjoy being who I am, uh, who God's made me to be. And it goes back to what you were talking about when I interviewed you that time before about identity. You know, mm. My identity now mm. is anchored in, in who I am before God. Mm. And, and I know I, I'm, I'm going to make some messes. My wife can point out a number of my faults. <laughs> and they're real. You know, they really are issues that mm. I have to, to sort out or things that I've gotten wrong. So I, I'm not trading on my ability to handle things well. I'm trading on and living on the fact that God loves me anyway. And mm. he is being his child and being secure in that relationship. Now, let me use one quick example. We're probably out of time. So let's just one more thing before I close. I like that the story that someone put to me way, way, way back when about how that that uh, 
uh, in the, the English royal family, you know, I'm thinking back when, when Prince Charles was only a boy, so we're talking about a long time ago, he could go to his mother, who was the queen, and get her an audience with her when dignitaries from other countries could never get it. Yep. Why? Because of that relationship. And, and he, could, he could get an audience with his mother when he had mud on his hands. He could get an audience with his mother when he'd broken the, the crockery. He could get an audience with his mother no matter how much he'd messed up because of that relationship that mm. was there. Mm. The other high-powered, influential, whatever, from dignitary from around the world with all of his whatevers didn't have that relationship. Mm. And what I've loved about what I've enjoyed ever since those early days is that I have a relationship with God. He's daddy. And, and yes, I mess up. And yes, I've got mud on my hands. But I can run into Daddy, and, and he's there for me. And so, ah, praise God. I'm, I sound like I'm preaching now. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking. Preach it, brother. <laughs> well, it, I hope that might be an encouragement to some of the guys out there. Um, I, I would have to say that, that I was pretty screwed up and, and pretty mangled on the inside. And I don't even know why. And I'm just so glad I'm not that way anymore. Ugh, I would hate to have lived my life. I don't know what kind of marriage I would have built if I'd stayed that fake. I don't know what kind of dad I would have been if I'd stayed that fake. You know, I've just so, been able to. So, what do you say to men if they're listening to this and just saying, "Wow, that's me. I'm fake. I'm not showing people who I really am." And this is part of what why I started Real Men 24/7. The whole name of being Real Men is about being. Real, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, being the same person, whether you're at work, whether you're at home, whether you're at the church, with your friends, are you being the same person or are you putting on different masks depending on where you're at? And so what would you, what would you say to men who can resonate with what you're telling them right now? I think I've got to say two things. I think it's absolutely critical for every one of us to find our own fulfillment to actually get to that place of being real. And for each person, I don't know where, what they're at, that could be a, a much more difficult journey for some than it is for others. Mm. But I think the other thing we might have to face is when we're getting real with ourselves, you might say, do you know what? I'm going to be really real. I'm scum. I'm a rat bag. I'm, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm jealous. I'm hurting. I'm, you know, being real might actually mean that we observe about ourselves a whole bunch of things that are not flattering and we don't want to necessarily go around it's a bit of a party killer to go up to someone and say hey by the way let me just tell you about myself i'm a rat bag you know that's that's not the sort of thing you would do to to win friends and influence people so the other part of that is to be able to go to god and say god i'm actually i'm actually really not very impressed with myself i i actually am hurting i am screwed up i i am feeling very vulnerable i am feeling broken on the inside i, I am feeling um, I'm very angry or, 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 or I'm, I, I can't process these things I'm dealing with. And then calling on him, especially to be in relationship with him where he is your dad. And, you know, it, you would have the experience with all the kids you've got. Some of them come to you and say, Dad, how do I fix this? And sometimes you just have to fix it for them because there's no use trying to tell them how to fix it. And you do. Other times you actually say, well, put your finger here, do that, tighten that, just do that. Mm. And you half fix it while they do the rest. Other times you simply say, now you know what to do. You just go and do it and bring it to me if it doesn't work. So different levels of intervention as a dad. Mm. But when we've got God as our dad and we come to him with our mess, sometimes he'll just simply pick it up and fix it up for us. Sometimes he'll actually say, okay, just be patient. 
follow these steps, do it with me, trust me, this will work. And other times he'll say, you know exactly what to do. Don't come and ask me about forgiving your brother. You know you've got to go and do it. Just You just go and do it, right? But that relationship undergirds us, gives us the, the security. Mm. And there's a, the one verse I think I ought to just share with people that really helped me. I was desperately afraid of letting God mess with me because I, I, I couldn't articulate it, but I felt so fragile on the inside that I was always afraid that God's fat fingers might actually break something in there. You know, I, I couldn't be sure I could trust him to really be delicate enough to deal with parts of me that were hurting. Although I didn't even know what they were. I just knew they were there. And I loved that verse. It was quoted by um, uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. But he was quoting Isaiah 42, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. And I remember when I was a kid, you'd be playing around in the yard and the ball or whatever would, would knock into the garden and one of mum's plants would kind of bend over right in the middle you know you'd bruised the stem and you'd try and stand it back up again and you'd it fall back over again you wanted to put a band-aid or something well you, you go and get a splint and, <laughs> yeah. and tie it on don't let mum see that i've broken this thing you know? um sometimes in our lives we actually feel like that I, I i've been hit so hard i'm actually i haven't snapped off but i'm broken over and every time i try to stand up i just keep falling back over again there is no strength in this reed the reed has been bruised and God's word is, trust me, I won't break you. Or the fire's been burning and now there's just a little tiny whiff of smoke from some little tiny spark in the corner. It's just a little bit of smoldering flax that's left. And if you just look, wet your thumb, you could have put it out in, 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 a, in a second. right? But that little tiny smoldering flax, he's not going to snuff you out. You might feel like, I have been, been through heaven and hell and high water. I am so messed up. I don't even know that I'm sane half the time. There's so little of me left and I just feel like the last breath of smoke, the last little spark of me is there. I I don't know how I can even survive. Mm. God will not put you out. He'll flame, he'll breathe on you and bring you back to flame again. So that was so encouraging to me. Mm. I just needed that assurance that I could trust him. Mm. I was was so afraid to let God in until I really saw that, okay, God, I'll trust you. So I would say, yes, be real. But recognize that in being real, there's just a whole lot of you that's pretty, needs to be brought to God's grace. It's pretty yucky, probably. But let God deal with it because he's not going to hurt you. He'll bring you through. He did for me. I'm sure he'll do it for all the guys listening here. Hmm. I think those are encouraging words that we all need to hear. Um, I, I don't think there's any point, there's any man... At some stage in his life, or probably multiple stages in his life, uh, doesn't um, doesn't need to hear those words. Mm. So you know, we're all we're all down from time to time. We're all feeling like life is too much for us, and there's too much on our shoulders. But um, you know, when we've got a Father in heaven who says, "Hey, I'm not gonna not gonna put you more through more than what you can handle," mm. it's uh, it's comforting to know. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Chris. Well, thank you. I hope you. that's been as big an encouragement to all of you listening as it has been to me. We will have to interview you, Chris, again another point because I think there's much more in there to talk about. But until then, uh, do go along to our website, realmen247.org, and also come along to Facebook and leave us a comment. And you can also send us an email at podcast at realmen247.org and 
If you've got any questions, I'm sure that Chris would love to answer those. <laughs> you can answer them too, man. Yeah, come on. So, you know, get in touch. Get in touch. If you, you're feeling a stirring in your spirit, you know, get in touch with us uh, or, or where you are as well. Talk, Go and talk to a local pastor of your church or to a good friend. And uh, you just need to, you need to talk to somebody. We'd love to hear from you. So until next time. And God bless you all. Look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Real Talk for Real Men podcast at www.realmen247.org.